It's good to see each one of you here today. We do lift before you any who are dealing with special issues right now. May you bless them and give them strength and direction. We pray for those who are not able to be here today. Pray that you might help them and guide them and bring them back to us. Thank you for the words we've been singing and these songs and the truths which they express. Help us today as we look into your word. To you be all the glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we begin a study in a very, very important book of the New Testament, the book of Galatians. Galatians. Galatians is one of the earliest written books in the New Testament. You see, the Council of Jerusalem mentioned in Acts chapter 15, dealt with at that point, we believe happened in the year 50 A.D. Now that's easy to remember. 50 A.D. for chapter 15 of Acts, Council of Jerusalem. Now why do I mention that? Because the book of Galatians does not mention it, which is strong evidence that the book of Galatians was written before Jerusalem Conference occurred. Since Jerusalem Conference was in 50 AD, the book of Galatians was evidently written earlier, earlier that year, or perhaps the year 49 and even possibly 48 A.D. Yes, one of the early books of the New Testament. So we'd like to begin a study of this very seminal book, this very basic book about the Lord Jesus and about the grace of God and the gospel of the grace of God. Acts 20, 24. It begins with a very powerful introduction. Galatians then beginning in chapter 1 with verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches, plural, of Galatia. Grace be to you, and peace from God our Father, God the Father, and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. You have magnified your word above all your name, it tells us in Psalm 143, verse 2. And so this being a very important part of God's word, we want to spend a few Sundays looking at it. 
The authors are mentioned in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. We normally just say Paul, but there were some people with him. So he says, Paul, an apostle, and then he talks about himself, and all the brethren who are with me, verse 2. So it isn't just Paul, but he includes those who are with him, no doubt including Timothy. And so they're writing under inspiration to the churches of Galatia. As we said, it may be 48, 49, and even early 50 A.D., very early writings of the New Testament. To whom were they written? Was it written? Written to the Galatians. Chapter 1, verse 2. Galatians were Gentiles. These were no doubt the churches that Paul and Barnabas had visited. Barnabas is no doubt included here. I should have mentioned him instead of Timothy earlier. And so they're writing to these Galatian people. Now, where is Galatia, which he refers to here? Galatia would involve, I believe, the four cities, especially in Acts 13 and 14. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And so this would be a follow-up letter to the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. It was a follow-up letter that dealt with a very serious issue. You see, others had come in, apparently, and were now insisting that these Galatian converts needed to be circumcised as under the old Mosaic law and needed to keep the law. So they were adding that to the gospel. Galatia, Galatians, where did they come from? We believe that they originated up near the Baltic Sea, up in north part of Europe. And they'd migrated down to what is now Turkey. But that was not the only place where they'd come. You perhaps know that the ancient name of France was Gaul, G-A-U-L. Actually, that's referring to the Galatians. <laughs> so there were Galatians not only in what is now Turkey, but there were Galatians, a lot of them, in what is now France. And they were spread other places as well. But they were Gentiles. They were not Jewish people. They were not raised with the Mosaic law. They were not raised with circumcision. They were not raised with the commands and statutes and judgments of the Old Testament law of Moses. And if that were important and still binding on Christians, Paul would have said so. He would have insisted that they get circumcised. He would have insisted that they follow the laws of Moses. He would have insisted that they keep the Sabbath day. He would have insisted on other things of the Old Testament law. But he didn't. But these others, we call them Judaizers, 
they were Jews who professed to be Christians and they were insisting that the new Gentile converts to Christ needed to be circumcised, needed to obey the Old Testament law of Moses. And so Paul needs to straighten them out. Don't listen to this kind of talk. You need to not be led astray. The book of Galatians is very, very strong at this point. At one place which really comes out strong is Galatians chapter 5, first three verses. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Look, I, Paul, tell you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. In other words, if you think you have to do that to be saved, he says Christ isn't going to profit you anything. Because I testify again to every man who is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. To follow all of it. So you see, this is the thing he's dealing with in the book of Galatians. And not only there, but we find it pretty well running throughout the book. This is the big issue. After he and Barnabas had left, these people had come in and insisted on these things. So now Paul is under inspiration of God with those with him, writing back to them, warning them against this false teaching, this twisting of the good news of Jesus. What were they really doing? Well, they were adding to the free grace of the Lord, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. They were taking away the freedom that the Gentiles had in Jesus. Now, one of the very important issues here is this. The Old Testament promised that a new covenant, a new agreement, a new testament would eventually come into effect. Now, I want to talk about this not only today, but in the future as we study Galatians here. But at this point, I simply want to say that more than once in the Old Testament, a new testament, a new covenant, a new agreement is prophesied. Something would come. It would supersede the Old Covenant. It would fulfill the Old Covenant. The Old Testament itself promised that this would happen. And in Christ it happened. And now they were trying to bring them back to the Old Covenant and Paul is helping them realize they are freed from that. They're no longer having to do these things. So this is important to remember in all of our study of the book of Galatians. And another thing I believe that's involved here is simply this. Since it is free, since we don't have to come under the works of the law and circumcision, that does not mean, therefore, that we can just go and live as we please, that we can throw away morality that we can do whatever our 
fallen nature wants to do. God will forgive us, he'll love us, so it's okay. Very strongly in the book, we see it's not okay. <laughs> we see that once we're Christians, we are to live a new life. And God lives in us, and he helps us to live that new life. Now, going back to this remarkable and powerful introduction, notice that one of the very first things, a foundational truth, Paul emphasizes here in verse 1, after he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ, highlighting his authority, therefore, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Right there at the beginning, this very important foundational truth. Years ago, a secular history book referring to and talking about Christianity mentioned that some people thought that he came alive. <laughs> That's a very lacking statement because that was the foundation of Christianity. Not only did some people think he came alive, the church knew he came alive. That's what it's based on. He is alive. They saw him. They touched him. They ate with him. In fact, at one point, a huge number of people saw him. And so we find it mentioned in this very first verse of this book of Galatians. Another thing we find that if we study the book of Acts, the history of the early church, God's working, God causing it to happen. And I hope next time that you read the book of Acts, you'll pay attention to this statement. In the book of Acts, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is very, very foundational and prominent. Very, very important. For example, at the day of Pentecost, Peter, as he preached his wonderful sermon, talked about the resurrection of Jesus. He referred back to Psalm 16 and how that he was not left in the grave, but he was raised before the ravages of decay could set in. That was prophesied by David in Psalm 16. That was an important part of that Pentecostal message in Acts 2, a fulfillment of Scripture. In chapter 4, it tells us with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon all of them. You see how important, how foundational the resurrection is, and they witnessed that, and with great power they proclaimed it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, people accepted it, knew it was true, believed in Jesus, and gave their lives to it. Apostle Paul strongly also emphasized the resurrection of the Lord Jesus how important that is, how vital that we keep it in mind as we live out our faith in the Lord Jesus. Also in the book of Corinthians, Corinthians chapter 15, we find how prominent the resurrection of Christ is, the bodily raising of himself from the dead. In this resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 
He talks about the gospel, the good news, in verse 1. And then he defines the gospel, as it were, beginning in verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. I turned over to you that which I also received. Remember earlier in Galatians, he said he's an apostle, not of man or of men. It's from the Lord and from God the Father, which I also received. How that, number one, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, just like the Bible said, just like it was prophesied. And also that he was buried, verse 4, and also that he rose again from the dead, according to the scriptures, on the third day. So he died for our sins, he was buried, he was really dead, and he was there in the tomb, and then God raised him victoriously from that, just like the Bible had prophesied. But then he goes on in verse 5, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's another name of Peter, Rock, then by the twelve, which I assume he means also including Matthias that was included to replace Judas. After that, he was seen of over 500 brothers all at once, of whom the greater part remain to this present time, but some are fallen asleep. So when Paul wrote this, he said, most of those 500 people that saw Jesus are still alive. They could be called to the witness stand. They could tell, yes, how they saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. So Jesus had appeared to Paul. He'd manifested himself to Paul as well. And so we find the resurrection is a basic thing of Christianity. In fact, going back to 1 Corinthians 15, he says this in verse 14. If Christ be not risen, then our preaching is futile, and your faith is also futile. He's saying if Christ is not alive, there's no point in our being here today, no point in being Christian. And then he says basically the same thing again in verse 17. If Christ is not raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. All this business of saying sins are forgiven, it's not true if Christ is not alive. But then he strongly says in verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead. He's become the first fruits of them who slept, a term for those who died. And so we find how foundational the resurrection is. I would that more preachers and teachers would emphasize this at other times than Easter. <laughs> it's great that we can do it on Easter. I'm glad there's such a day where we emphasize it. But it's a perennial type of truth that we need to bear in mind and know it's foundational to our faith in the Lord Jesus. Now back to Galatians. We find uh, something important. We find the mention of, of grace, chapter 1, verse 3. Grace be to you. Grace. What is that? 
<laughs> what is grace? Well, it's unmerited favor. It's something we don't deserve. It's a gift of God. This is integral to the good news, the gospel. This must not be taken away from the truth. It's a matter of God's grace, not a matter of our earning it or being good or moral or filling up our lives with good deeds. Even reading the Bible, praying, and other wonderful religious acts, these do not save us. The church does not save us. Jesus saves us. And we sang about turning our eyes to Jesus, didn't we? And how important that is, that we do that. We focus on him and that we do not take away or add to God's grace. It's a matter of God getting all the credit, not us. It's a gift of God. By grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works lest anybody should boast. We find that in Ephesians chapter 2. It goes on there in Ephesians, says we're created in Christ to good works. That's God's eternal purpose for us. But we're not saved by them. <laughs> A vital distinction here. It's the grace of God, the unmerited favor. It's his mercy extended to us. We don't deserve it, but it's a gift he gives us it's received by trust, by faith, not by our good deeds and our morality. But he goes on and says something else here in Galatians 1.3. After he says grace to you, yes, we need that. He goes on to say, and peace from God the Father. Grace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So important that we know this grace and that we know this peace. In Luke 24, verse 36, first Easter night, <clears throat> Jesus appeared to the apostles. And right away he says to them, <clears throat> peace be to you. They were scared. They thought he was a ghost. He calms their fears. He says, peace be to you. His first general appearance to the apostles, that first Easter night, he speaks of peace. Peace be to you. How important it is. In Mark chapter 4, <clears throat> the apostles had earlier been with Jesus in a ship, a boat. A huge storm came. They were scared. They woke him up. He was asleep. He had faith and didn't worry about things like this. Don't you care that we are perishing? He got up and what did he say? He talked to the storm. He said, peace be still. Bam, everything changed. Peace. In a sense, that's the kind of change that he offers to us, the kind of peace that he extends to us and to them. Peace be to you. Jesus talked about this at the Last Supper, didn't he? What's it say in 
John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not like the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. And so we can all be recipients of this peace. Not only in good times, but in difficult days. When we're dealing with issues that may really crush us and we find very hard to live with, we can come to God and he will help us with those things, whatever they may be. Peace, I leave with you. And then another thing we discover here back in Galatians, he talks about being delivered from this present evil world. Galatians 1, 14. Now that's not the way a lot of people look at the world. This present evil world. What in the world is he talking about? Well, in 1 John 5, 19, he also talks about the wicked world. In John 17, 15, in the prayer of Jesus, he prays that God not take them out of the evil world, but that he preserve them from the evil. So we're in the world, and we need God's help to be protected and to not involve ourselves with the sins of the age. Many Christians don't understand this. It's so easy to become a friend of the world instead of realizing that Jesus had earlier said, and this is important, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And so when we belong to him, he can overcome now through us as well. This evil age, we're to rise above it and to live for God. We're to live in a way that we sang. We're to live like the scripture calls us to live. He's our Lord and our God. And it's significant then that this Remarkable and powerful introduction ends with verse 5. Galatians 1.5. Speaking of God the Father. To whom be glory forever and ever. We are here to glorify God. We're here to bring honor to him. We're here to walk in his ways and represent him. And allow his light to shine brightly through us. What are we here for? We find that answered in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. Here's a verse I'd encourage you to memorize, to meditate on, to never forget. Here's why we're here. Here's how we glorify God. 43, 7. He's talking about everyone who is called by my name because I have created him, why? For my glory, that's why. I've created him for my glory. I have formed him, yes, I have made him. And then he reemphasizes 
Similarly, in verse 21, this people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. That's what we're here for, for God to show his praise, to let his light shine brightly through us. Finally, let's go to Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Same type of thing here. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So there it is. To glorify God, to honor him, to praise him. In fact, what we call the Lord's Prayer, how does it end? It ends in giving glory to God. How should our lives be lived? The same way, bringing glory and honor to God, as we see here in Revelation as we see in Isaiah 43, as we see in the Holy Scriptures, that's the purpose of life. That's the glory, in a sense, of life, God himself. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for these momentous truths. Thank you for the book of Galatians, written to help the church not be misled written to help the church follow you and live for you. Help us as we study the book of Galatians truly to recommit ourselves to do that very thing, to trust you, to love you, to follow you, to serve you, to accept your grace, to receive your free salvation and the freedom that you give us. Thank you, Lord, for doing it. Thank you for still working in us and helping us day by day. And again, we pray for any who have special needs. May you be blessing them. We also pray for the lady who's going to worship with us next Sunday, lady involved in Asian ministry who's been here before. We pray for her and her travels and that she might be a blessing not only to us but to the Burmese people later that afternoon. Thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.